Good morning, good afternoon, wherever you are in the world. This is Talking Impact, brought to you by the Institute for Social Innovation and Impact at the University of Northampton. My name is Richard Hazenberg, and in each podcast, I'm joined by a leading person from the world of social innovation to discuss their life, work, and the current affairs issue of the day. This week, I'm joined by Charlie Wigglesworth, Deputy CEO of Social Enterprise UK. Welcome, Charlie. How are you doing? Uh, good morning, afternoon, everyone. Uh, yeah, very well, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no, not at all. Um, but first of all, we always like to start with a question uh, to our guest member about asking them to define what social innovation means to them. Um, and obviously with the work you're doing at SEUK, perhaps we can extend that to talk about social enterprise as well. So I suppose, what, what does social innovation mean to you and, and then how do you think that relates into social enterprise, Charlie? Sure. So, uh, I mean, um, for me, you know, um, social innovation is about um, coming up with uh, new and different uh, solutions to, you know, challenging and systemic um, social and environmental problems. Um, and I guess if I was translating that into the world of social enterprise, I would say that, um, you know, social enterprises or and social entrepreneurs that run social enterprises are all um, social innovators, but that um, social innovation can happen in all areas of life. So there are you know, businesses and charities and um, governments who are um, being social innovators, um, whereas social enterprise is, in our view, is a very specific um, business model and movement and certain way of doing things that has social innovation at its heart. I mean, I, I find it really interesting to, to when, when when we talk about social innovation, and we, we have this with a number of our guests actually, and, and social enterprises. That I think many many of our listeners, or certainly a lot of people out there, might sort of see social innovation and social enterprises being something that belongs in the third sector, the charitable sector. I know social enterprises are, are classed as third sector organisations, but what role do you see for social innovation, and even to a degree, social entrepreneurship in the public sector and in the private sector as well? So, I mean, the first thing we'd say is we, we definitely don't see social enterprise as part of the third sector. I think we've been very clear in um, our uh, conversations with government, with business uh, and with the general public that we see social enterprise as the future of business. We think it is absolutely about business and about doing business in a totally different way. Um, I think the social innovation area more broadly, um, yeah, absolutely, is something that I think uh, can and should happen across um, all areas of life. And that thinking and that approach um, is something that is increasingly recognised um, as you see this kind of convergence of um, the way in which businesses, governments and charities talk about, about what they do um, and, and the language that they're using to do that. And, and actually quite often, from our perspective, we find social enterprises this kind of thing at the nub of all of those uh, different sectors um, being seen as having some of the solutions to some of those um those issues uh, i i love that idea that social enterprise sits at the nub of it because we've done work in the past that looks at the role that you know partnership building and collaboration between sectors and different organizations has in in driving social innovation i know that's something that you know seuk has been quite keen to push uh, in the past um, and what, what what role do you see uh, for partnership building and collaboration between sectors in driving this I think it's absolutely key. I think that there's a real and growing recognition that the um, both the the nature of the challenges that we face uh, across everything from um, you know climate change uh, to um, you know social justice um, are not going to be met by any one sector. And the idea that government can solve this or that business will solve this um, uh, or that charities will solve this just 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 isn't true. And it will require that collaboration. And I think one of the things that social enterprise is one of the interesting roles that they can play is to, is to be um uh yeah that um 
that that conduit, that intermediary between those different sectors, because it's seen as being aligned to them in a way that that, that sometimes is an element of mistrust, for example, between government and business, uh, or between charity and business, and 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 how they work together to collaborate um, can be can be more um, fractious, and sometimes it can be through a kind of social enterprise um, model. There's often an assumption made, isn't it, that we're, that different organisations in different sectors, or even within government, are, are all on the same side, and it's not always the um, doesn't always seem to be the way that it plays out. So I think pushing that kind of collaborative approach is is definitely key, in my my opinion, anyway, to to driving um, innovation and social entrepreneurship. Um, that being said, um, obviously you're deputy CEO of Social Enterprise UK, um, so perhaps you could tell us uh, and the listeners um, a little bit more about the work that Social Enterprise UK uh, do, please, Charlie. Sure. Yeah. So um, we are the, as the name would suggest, uh, probably uh, we're the, you know, the national um, body for the social enterprise sector. We're a, we're a membership body, first and foremost. So we have uh, nearly 2,000 uh, members who are all social enterprises uh, from uh, who operate in pretty much every sector of the economy. So from um, kind of small startups to big several hundred million turnover businesses, um, and in every sector from, um, you know, fast-moving consumer goods to, um, you know, IT consultancy uh, to big uh, public sector infrastructure and, and transport and leisure and, and a whole range of different uh, different areas of the economy. And, and really, our role is is around um, primarily um, championing and growing that, that movement. So we have... Uh, uh, for a long time been responsible for um, creating the evidence base on the growth of the social enterprise uh, sector in the UK, um, the diversity of it, the, the quality of the businesses that are growing to make the kind of economic case that this is something that should be taken seriously, um, but also the social case around how they're operating, how they're doing things, um, the demographics of who runs them, um, the fact that they're much more likely to be based in areas of high deprivation. Um, the fact that they're more innovative as businesses, um, all of these things around how they operate. So there's an overall championing role that we play, um, working particularly with the government, um, but also working internationally uh, increasingly. And then the other side of what we do is, is very much around kind of what we'd loosely term kind of market building. So one of the things that we've come to see is incredibly important is um, uh, the need for social enterprises as businesses to con- continue to grow and diversify where they um where they generate their business from. Um, there's a huge amount of work that government has done around social investment. So thinking about how do they get capital and finance into social enterprises, um, which is obviously incredibly important. But but I think the interesting role that we've increasingly played is around how do we support those markets that want to buy from social enterprises to do that more easily? So how do we work with big businesses on, on their procurement and supply chains and how can they buy from social enterprises? Um, how do we work with uh, government and the public sector through through the Social Value Act, so kind of championing that and, and growing that, how um, the public sector can buy more from social enterprise, and how can we raise more awareness with the general public, so um, through uh, the Buy Social logo and, and campaign um, and this Buy Social Saturday, which is coming up in, in October, um, to raise awareness and use the kind of Buy Social stamp as a kind of fair trademark, I guess, to increase the general public's awareness of what it means to buy from a social enterprise because by doing that that market growth and development then we believe that's the way to really accelerate the growth of the social enterprise economy itself 
And the, I mean, yeah. So the, the, the bi-social thing is is of great interest to me, and I'm, I, we won't talk about it now because, as you know, we're going to going to build the second sure. half of the yeah, podcast yeah, yeah. around that. So, listeners, you know, please stay tuned if you want to hear more about uh, bi-social and how social value fits into procurement and building consumer markets. But let's go back to what you were talking about in terms of championing uh, the social enterprise sector. And you say that you work, obviously, a lot with government and increasingly internationally. Perhaps you could give us an example from each of those about how you've worked with policymakers in the past and how you've done some international linkages in trying to build the you know, awareness of the social enterprise. Yeah, so, um, I mean, we've been working with uh, the UK government since 2002. Um, we help to create um, the uh, community interest company legal structure, so the, the, which is the first kind of dedicated legal structure for social enterprise in the world in 2005. Um, so a lot of that really, particularly in the early years, was um, was about creating some of that, um, some of the infrastructure now. And what, what's been created actually is now an infrastructure that's very envied in other parts of the world. So what's interesting in terms of translating that into work that we've done internationally is that the UK has... Um, both a developed um, legal system to support um, social enterprise, a developed um, uh, kind of startup um, infrastructure with organisations like Unlimited and the School for Social Entrepreneurs. Um, it's got um, a huge amount of um, social investment and engagement around that area. And, and, and really a lot of what we're doing in other parts of the world is, is around how do we apply some of the lessons and learnings because not everything has been how we'd want it necessarily uh, to, to other parts of the world. So where they are starting out on trying to understand, for example, um, you know, what does the social enterprise sector look like in Ghana or in Pakistan or in uh, other parts of the world. And we can, we've been doing our research and mapping work now for, for 12 years. We've done kind of six editions of that and, and helping uh, those local organisations to take the first steps to do that or the first steps to engage government around why is social enterprise important and why should they back it. Um, so those sorts of areas where we've got um, a, a, a a kind of length of, of, of experience and expertise and where we can hopefully um, bring some of that into what we can and, and can't do and what's possible, um, but very much sat within the local context of what, what's important in that country, of course. Yeah, I think that's so important. We, we do a lot of work in, uh, in the Institute out in Vietnam, helping to build the social enterprise sector out there. And they're always really, you know, I think internationally people do hold the UK um, social enterprise sector up as a sort of, you know, a beacon of, um, of best practice and whilst I think that that is the case in many ways um, I think there's a lot of uh, areas that other countries can almost learn from the mistakes that we've made if that makes sense um, particularly thinking around yeah. areas like the development of the social investment market to a degree um, and but that local context is so important isn't it because these are community organizations and community innovators generally and so if you're not socially embedded in that local context it, it can be very difficult to to be a successful organization. It can, yeah. Although I think, again, you know, if I look at the, you know, one of the great um, strengths of the, the social enterprise sector, as well as one of the challenges for us as a representative body is just the incredible diversity. And, and we represent, yeah, a huge number of organisations who are, yeah, hugely embedded and intertwined with the communities in which they, they operate and others that, um, yeah, have very different needs as businesses uh, and, and are growing in different ways. So I think there is that common thread of, um, you know, being about um, you know, social impact first and having a very clear social mission that they're looking to achieve. But beyond that, there is um, an incredible diversity across the space. And that's part of what makes it very exciting. But also it, it can be quite difficult to 
um, the idea that they're all small or community-based and stuff it can actually be a challenge for us in terms of people's perceptions of what it, what, what the sector looks like and, and how it operates. Because of that perception, sometimes reality that social enterprises are, um, can be quite small and locally based, it does cause them difficulties when, for instance, they're trying to compete for um, government contracts or public service con- uh, delivery as well. Um, because they don't have the same sizes as your as your primes or your private sector organisations that are able to, um, to to bid for these services as well. Yeah, and, and certainly if you look at um, you know, if people go on our website and, and look at, at socialenterprise.org.uk, um, the way that we talk about the sector, the examples that we use, uh, what we use in our campaigns, and so on, we're very keen to emphasise their qualities as a business, the quality of what they deliver, um, that product or service, because that is fundamental to their impact models if they don't have a good quality business then they they can't have the impact that they want to have um and so uh, that side of things because there is that um assumption that yeah like you say they they'll be small or they won't be very good or um you know they'll be nice businesses but not capable businesses and and all of those things are incredibly important to us yeah we we've actually done some we did work with a social enterprise um that actually works heavily with private sector customers um, and actually, they often don't push their social. It's daft, but I understand completely why they don't push their their, their social enterprise credentials at the start because they yeah. don't want to be seen as a, another charity. And actually, they're, they're so efficient, um, you know, at, at, in the business area that they work in that the, the, their clients are always over the moon with the work that they do. And then when they introduce to them, oh, well, and by the way, we're also a social enterprise doing good, then the, the, the clients think it's absolutely fantastic because they're almost getting this great business service and they're ticking some CSR um, and sort of social, you know, social responsibility boxes. Um, and that's a challenge, isn't it? Definitely is a challenge in, in trying to get across to people that, yes, social enterprises are doing good, but they're also very efficient uh, and, and very successful businesses often. Yeah, uh, and and you know, and that's an important message to to those markets. Um, clearly, as I said, yeah, and, and your example is a good one. And we we definitely get lots of our members who maybe lead with the fact that they're a social enterprise. But it but it's also, I think, an important message for us to give to the sector itself that actually you need to be you need to be a good business. You need to be able to operate and, and be effective and yeah, you know, be high quality and um, yeah, competitively priced and so on. Otherwise all the rest of it doesn't stack up and, and particularly in the current climate you know there is there's very little um safety debt there's not huge amounts of um you know kind of traditional grant funding and so on if you're trying to operate in a, in a, a more charitable way then that's a, a, an approach you can take but it's a very very difficult one and um and so that that need to constantly professionalize improve you know iterate the quality of what you're doing from a business perspective is is a really strong uh, driver for us i think Okay, let's go on, um, back to talk about you for a bit, um, Charlie. So uh, you're obviously deputy CEO of SE UK. Um, you know, tell us a bit about your background. And what, how did you first engage in social enterprise? What got you interested in the world of social enterprise? You know, um, talk us through that a little bit. Sure. So um, my background is um, was all with businesses. It was private sector. Um, I uh, worked um, in the city for a little bit. That was a brief and major error after university uh lasted about a year and then ran away uh i um i then spent a few years um uh, doing kind of training and consultancy working mainly with um a bit of private sector clients but mainly with bits of the public sector so working with um uh nhs local authority the, those sorts of areas um and then and that was when i first encountered social enterprise so i i worked with um 
well, a couple of colleagues I'm still working with now, actually, who I met at that point, um, but only very briefly because it was starting to become a term that um, local authorities were interested to hear about, that the NHS was interested to, to learn more about when the kind of rights request um, stage, which was kind of 2010, something like that, that that was happening. Um, but I, I, I stayed in, in the, that kind of private sector role. Um, I then set up a, a kind of B2B events business. So I ran that for about 18 months uh, and kind of had a go at being an entrepreneur and, and doing all those things within a kind of broader business environment and really enjoyed that process, but, but didn't really um, find just running events all the time very satisfying or very interesting. Um, and it was at that point that the the opportunity came along at, at Social Enterprise UK. So this was back in 2012. Um, and really, I think it was it was two things. I think firstly that um, uh, I'm very motivated by um, the potential of social enterprise and that opportunity around you know uh, business for good and and that whole piece was very engaging for me. And I think the other thing was the the diversity and the variety of, of the role and the scope of what you could do within SUK. It's a very interesting organisation in terms of our position, partly to what we were talking about earlier, really, in terms of that intersection of public and private and third sector and so on. And, and, and my rather patchy career history before that had been kind of moving around a bit between, you know, working in uh, with the public sector, working with the private sector, working with, with um, you know, big businesses, working with small businesses, working within a small business. And, and so all of that, um, uh, those kind of intersections have always been quite interesting to me. Uh, um, and so, yeah, it was a perfect opportunity really to start to combine those two and to help SUK, who at the time were, were looking at um, transitioning to being more business-like themselves, wanted someone from a commercial background. And so, yeah, they kind of all, th- all of those things aligned and, um, yeah, not really looked back since, to be honest. But then that probably ties into what we were, what you were talking about earlier around that diversity and that need for sort of multi-sector approaches to this. I mean, actually, you have that background across a variety of different sectors, don't you, and, and large and small organisations um, that perhaps give, allows you to have that insight into how you can deliver um, better collaboration. Yeah, I think it, you know, it certainly helps um, having done a bit of that. But uh, And I think you know, more than that, it's being very comfortable with that the level of diversity in the role in terms of the nature of people you meet and being interacting in those different contexts and environments from being with a you know big corporate shiny office one day to to working with you know one of our members that work with homeless people the next and and all of those different different things so um that that's the bit that's most rewarding for me is some of that variety but yeah i guess being fairly adaptable is is handy in that uh, that space as well yeah, and, and working in the city as well, we could probably do a whole podcast just on your year and a half in the city, couldn't we? Uh, give us some of your, your insights and experiences for what that was like. Dark, d- dark um. and dangerous place, Richard. Yeah, let's not go there. And interesting to hear that, you know, your first engagement with it was sort of through the right to request and all the public service mutuals and spin outs. That was... Um, a lot of my early um, early research was 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 in that area. So uh, again, we could probably do another podcast on public service mutuals and the whole the whole spin out mm. sector. But perhaps we'll leave that one for another day, or it'll tie in a little bit to the social value stuff we talk about talk mm-hmm. about later. Okay, um, we always end up end up our first segment of the podcast by asking a slightly tongue in cheek um, question around you know can a social entrepreneur drive a Lamborghini and. What, am I, what do I mean by that? Well, basically, if you're a social entrepreneur, can you still take profit out of your business? Can you still earn a good living? Can you have the nice things in life? Um, what's your take on that? Can, can a social entrepreneur drive a, drive a lovely car? Uh, we'd hope it was a Tesla rather than a Lamborghini. Uh, um, <laughs> yes, that's good, yeah. Uh, no, sorry. Uh, 
yes, I think would be the, the very short answer. The, the slightly longer answer than that is that the way in which our, if you look at the detail of our definition around a social enterprise, um, it, it's not a prerequisite that the, the, the founder doesn't take any money or can't earn a good salary um, uh, or can't be rewarded for helping to grow the business. What's important to us is that the, the individual founder or founders do not have overall control of that business. So the the control of the business has to stay with the social purpose for which it was created because that's how you lock that in perpetuity and that's how you give confidence to consumers and buyers and people that want to support you that you're always going to exist for that social mission that you were set up for. Beyond that, I think a big part of our narrative has to be about the fact that um, you know, social enterprise should offer the opportunity to, to both, you know, do good and do well. And these aren't very binary things that you either do one or the other. Um, it's not an either or. I don't think you have to, you know, wear a hair shirt and, and you know, be part of a, you know, be poorly paid and, and do good um, or go and do well and sacrifice your morals and then kind of return to them a few years later and do some philanthropy. I, I think what we're seeing in the world and I think what we're trying to reflect in social enterprise is an increasing view that actually it has to be about doing both um and if the, if you're not letting people you know, drive both then you're not going to win out in the current um you know, war on talent in the current um desire of, of of people entering and and you know further up uh, uh, in their careers already um and so yeah we, we don't want to see or get into a position where the, those two things are seen as mutually exclusive so i think we're um yeah, we're, we're within reason. We're coming up with that. It's it's the control point that's important for us, uh, and that's where the difference is between yeah, a good business or a business that's trying to do a bit of good and a social enterprise that's absolutely set up for that purpose. And which is where the community interest company legal form that that, that you guys champion comes in, of course, as well. Yeah, it doesn't mean you, it's not the only way, that, but that locks in all of that for you in a very neat package. Um, there's other ways of doing it within other legal structures, but yeah, that that would be our. Ultimately, that's why it's a, what makes a social enterprise a social enterprise. Yeah, no, good. I, I like the Tesla angle as well. I might use that one in the, uh, in the next in the next in the next podcast. So there you go, listeners. Um, do you agree or disagree with Charlie's take? Social entrepreneurs they can drive Lamborghinis. Probably prefer that they drive Teslas, but it isn't something where you can't take um, take money and a good standard of living uh, out of your work. Feel free to let us know via our Twitter feed uh, at Talking Impact and our LinkedIn page www.instituteforsocialinnovationandimpact.co.uk. We'll be back shortly after this break. Welcome back to Talking Impact. Each podcast we explore a topical issue related to the third sector or our guests' um, work. This show is therefore going to be centred around social value, particularly uh, because of SEUK's work on Social Saturday and buying social, as Charlie alluded to earlier. So, Charlie, tell us a little bit about SEUK's social, social Saturday and social buying guide. I know you've talked a little bit about it earlier, but let's have a little bit more detail about what this means in terms of the aims and the scope, the focus on consumers, and how we can relate that into procurement. So a lot of, a lot of questions in there, I know, but, uh, but yeah, just <laughs> so, tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, so I guess um, Social Saturday uh, came from our, our Buy Social campaign, uh, which started in, in 2012. And the Buy Social campaign is a, is a, a brand um, encouraging people to buy social our, our ambition for that brand is that it becomes uh, as widespread as fair trade in terms of public understanding and awareness of what it means when a product carries that that brand uh, and the fact that that means that they're a social enterprise and, and what that means about them um as a strategy it forms part of that kind of market building piece i talked about earlier and broadly speaking we divide that into kind of public private and then general public uh, and social saturday falls into the general public bit 
Um, so it's really a campaign to engage um, the average um, man or woman on the street uh, to understand uh, what a social enterprise is, uh, what's different about them and how they can find one near them and buy from them. Okay, so so it's like a fair trade badge. Now, we've seen similar stuff to this in the past, haven't we, with things like the social enterprise mark, um, which, you know, w- wasn't perhaps as successful as many people would have hoped. What do you think is going to differentiate um, the sort of, you know, buy social and the social Saturday that you that you guys are delivering from, say, the SC mark? So I, I think um, one of the things, so we have a, um, a kind of broader um certification stamp for, for all of our members, um, which is for, to demonstrate that they are a social enterprise. I think the the key thing for us about BiSocial is that it was very much designed and is very much targeted around that um, the general public and consumer audience. So everything that we're doing with it and how we're pushing it is, is around um, that campaigning and brand element. Um, it's a much, it's a very simple brand. It shrinks very well, so it goes very well onto the back of products. Uh, it's on things like Belly Water um, and uh, Change Please Coffee and Divine Chocolate if you buy it in the co-op uh, and various other brands. And so I think what, what the key thing is both um, uh, our ability to um, you know, get it onto products so we can get it into, you know, people see it in obvious places like that, but also the um the kind of networks and, and uh, reach that we have on that side. So um, I think the social media reach last year was about 42 million tweets or something ridiculous like that. So, you know, how we can get real scale uh, onto these things um, in order to start to build that awareness of the brand, because I think that does it, that's the key opportunity for us um, in terms of taking this forward and also how we do that internationally. So we've licensed the BiSocial brand to Australia, to Canada, to um another three or four countries we're looking at at the moment as well so how we start to globalize that as well because obviously we're we're living in global times and that's a key part of, of so the, the ambition is very much uh, around that i mean first of all uh, change please coffee listeners i can definitely vouch for the quality of that great coffee uh, i know kamali runs it but um, it's a, it's really fantastic coffee as well and, and, a, and a great organization um i mean you talk very much there about social media how powerful do you think social media is in in driving the the social enterprise message you know over and above sort of traditional advertising methods i think it's it, it's all part of a mix um i think um you know we um our strategy uh, revolves around both what we can do through, um, uh, because we don't have, you know, the budget to do loads of TV advertising or billboards and so on. So we we, we look to do things through, we can do tactically through social media, through some of our celebrity partners, so people like Michael Sheen and so on, that can help to promote uh, messages to a much wider and more global audience. Um, but also, I think a big part for us is about how we work through our members and supporters. So, um, you know, the cooperative group who support um Social Saturday and have done for the past two years, um, you know, have four million members, have a large retail presence nationally. Um, and so working through them, um, through our large members like uh, Better and um, HCT and so on that that have um, large footfall and, and working through them as a way of, I guess, more traditionally magnifying what we do, um, as well as using social media and the like to do that at a national level. So it's really a lot of what we do is around how do we enable people to run things locally. So um I think last year there were 60 events around the country that were all run by our members, run by people locally. Um, we don't have the scale to do that centrally, but but by having that ripple effect, I think we can we can start to rebuild that brand awareness piece um, and media awareness piece as well. And um, obviously, the focus is on consumers. Um, 
but I, I'm also thinking about um, potential for around procurement here. I mean, the University of Northampton mm-hmm. has just released its own guide for HIs on how they can buy social in their procurement, and, and I think as we've termed it, do good stuff through the procurement pound. Is mm-hmm. that an area that um, SUK is also keen to push into in the future with its buy social? It's it's already a, a big area of, of what we do. So. Um, uh, and uh, sorry, one thing just before we move on to social satire, I was, should have mentioned was around um, we are looking to link that into the, the B2B work that we do. Um, so there's a we're specifically looking to work with universities on a, a change.org uh, campaign that's getting students to sign up to um, that's uh, to write to FTSE 350 CEOs to say that big business must do more to build an equal society and, and the ways that they can do that and practically how they can do that. So um, we're already seeing the bisocial message push into the the b2b space most of what we've done in that area has been with big business so um i helped to develop and and have grown something called the bisocial corporate challenge uh, which started um three years ago now with uh, a collection of seven businesses um in a whole range of different sectors kind of how they could have an ambition to spend a billion pounds of social enterprises um over the next five years um, we've now got 15 businesses um, of all shapes and, and, and sizes, um, but collectively they spend about £40 billion in the UK. Um, and we're supporting them very directly with um, advisory work, with training, with um, linking what they buy and their demand side with the supply that the social enterprise sector can, can have. Um, and what we're really interested in doing is looking at how do we take the lessons from some of that. Um, and they spent £45 million, those partners, uh, last year. How do we take that to, to other large institutions, be those um, uh, HEIs, uh, housing associations, uh, local authorities, um, central government, uh, a whole range of, of areas where we can use some of the learnings from what we've done there with, with big procurement teams, um, but in different contexts. Which kind of like segues us nice and neatly into into the second area we wanted to focus on, which was around social the Social Value Act. Um, now, I mean, this has been an area that, I mean, I'll wait to hear your opinion, but I think has been a relatively successful piece of legislation in driving the consideration of social value uh, in, in procurement and commissioning processes. I mean, what's your take? Six years after the Social, uh, social Value Act was, was put into legislation, what do you think the impact of that has been to date? So um, obviously we were uh, have been deeply invested in the the progression of the social value act from the start really. So it was in our um, election manifesto back in 2010 when we kind of said this is what we'd do if we were in power at the next election. Um, and I think um, I guess from our perspective there were there were two key things that we were looking to drive. I think more broadly we wanted to see the public sector use the public purse better uh, and to think more holistically about how it bought. And the second more selfish thing was we wanted to see more social enterprises winning contracts uh, because part of our um, rationale behind it in the first place from a, a kind of member sex perspective was around social enterprises are delivering social, economic and environmental values for their business models anyway. And th- in the previous, um, under EU procurement law, more generally, that those things can't be considered as part of the procurement tender process. And we thought that was unfair. Um, I think on those two metrics, I think um, on the first, I think it's been... Um, uh, we would probably say it's been patchy at this point. So we've done a lot of work on the evidence base across. Um, yeah, we've we've done freedom of information requests to every local authority. We've uh, surveyed um, hundreds of um, clinical commissioning groups, worked with um, people across a whole variety of areas of the public sector. Um, and what you see is a, a fairly 
patchy picture where you've got some very, very strong engagement and really deep thinking about how this can make a difference uh, and, and how things can be driven and done differently and other areas where people are barely using it at all and where it's not really happening. I think that's symptomatic of the fact that um, it wasn't a government bill. It was a private member's bill. Um, so from a legislative perspective, while there's been the occasional um, nudge or single from government, and there's been another one recently from uh, David Livingston, the cabinet office, that they want to take it seriously within central government, um, there hasn't been a consistent and uh, you know, concerted effort to make this kind of applied properly across all of the public sector. So I think that's that's limited its overall impact, although it is already driving some very interesting things. Um, on the second point of has it helped social enterprise, I think um, uh, the jury's probably even more out on that one. So I think um, we know of some, uh, it's difficult to track some of these things. We've just started doing some work on um, using open data to track uh, contract wins by our members uh, through the public sector, um, but certainly anecdotally and from speaking to um, uh, our members who are operating in the public sector, I think still um, yeah, um, scale and ability to, to, to operate in those markets is still the biggest challenge and the social value act can be a, a nice bonus, but, but, but hasn't for the most part had a significant impact on business growth or, um, uh, or in the weighting of contracts at a national level. You mentioned there um, David Lidington's speech, um, or yeah, his speech when he went to the, uh, the think tank reform, which was something I was going to bring up. So again, thank you okay. for the uh, for the easy segue <laughs> into that. Um, where they're actually now talking about strengthening the social value act. I mean, one of the biggest criticisms of it when it first came out was that it it only required um, public bodies to consider social value in the commissioning pro- process. It wasn't a sort of um, explicit um, thing that they you know. Uh, had to build in um mm-hmm. you know do you think that by strengthening that 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 will that will help i mean how what was how, was was the consider element a mistake i realize there's probably some horseplay in parliament as to to, to what the final it, wording it, of that it was. was yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um i think um clearly we would like to see the wording strengthened um i think that the that would need to happen in conjunction with with much greater um quality guidance centrally on how to apply it. I think one of our concerns would be that um, if the only thing that happens is they change it to require rather than consider, then the likely response from a lot of the people that don't want to do it anyway is to make it very um, tick boxy and not really engage with it and do any thinking about it. And I think um, one of the really interesting things that we'd see from from our examples is how um, where um, public bodies have really considered kind of how can this make us think differently about what we do and how we operate differently how can this reduce demand on public services how can this lead to better efficiencies um much better use of the you know dwindling available resources then we've seen some very interesting things happen and where that hasn't happened the likelihood is that if you just say we you're now required to do this is they'll think of the simplest way possible to achieve it and then say yeah we've done it thanks very much so i think it, it would need to be, um, we would like it to go to require, but we would like there to be um, much better quality guidance and examples about how this can help to drive value, actually, um, because that's still the overriding um, driver from Treasury and, and across most of um, the public sector is still around you know, cost reduction, cost savings, and still quite this quite binary approach to um, how you achieve that. 
Of course, if you deliver social value um, properly um, within your commissioning, then actually in the long run, you should you actually should be hitting those treasury targets as well because absolutely, more, yeah, more absolutely, sort of, yeah, yeah, value orientated. Absolutely, yeah, but but I think you know there's just that. In the same way that I think when people hear social enterprise, I think they're going to be more expensive. When they hear social value, they're like, "Oh, that's going to cost more." Um, you know, there is just a um, uh, the language of um, you know, commissioning and, and, and procurement, and, and the way in which it's been approached means that that isn't always. And it's taken, and there's been some, as I say, some there's some amazing examples out there of, of really well considered, thought through approaches to to applying it differently. Um, but that that would need to be part of how it was um, rolled out if there was legislative change, which I don't think will happen through the Liddington piece, but um, but at least it's now being talked about in central government, which was one of the areas where there's absolutely nothing happening, uh, I think, if you go back kind of a year, 18 months. Yeah, I think the buy-in is a key one here. I mean, uh, I know at, at the University of Northampton, we've just been, well, we've just finished out the build of our new campus, which which um, opened this month. Um, and we had social value clauses built in to our uh contracts with you know the developers and the builders and everybody working on site and i think because the university actually genuinely bought into that process and because the the people tendering for the contracts you know knew that there was actually some really really genuinely good buy-in from the private sector organizations about the types of social value clauses that could for you know that you know that that, that, that could or let me rephrase that the social impact that they could deliver and be put in place but it does require that the commissioning body or you know the university whatever you want to um you know, whichever area you're working in, to actually genuinely buy into that process, like you say, if it's a tick box exercise, then 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 nobody's going to engage in that, um, you know, in the right way. I don't suppose. Yeah, and, and I think one of the other, you know, in terms of you know where the social value has had a real impact, I think one of the areas it definitely has actually has been with, you know, some of the big, um, you know, private sector providers like you know construction and, and the development there. Um, we've worked with people like uh, Waits and Amy and others for a long time now, and. Um, you know, genuine, um, you know, top-down and bottom-up kind of engagement with this stuff, um, both because they think it's the right way to run their business, but also when you can tie that to a a commercial imperative of saying, you know, this will help us differentiate and, you know, we can now compete on something that isn't, you know, I was having a conversation with someone from Waits a couple of years ago and he was saying, well, you know, basically when it comes to tendering for a new, uh, to build a new school, for example, them and eight of their competitors can all do it to about the same standard, about the same price, uh, in about the same time frame and suddenly you've got this new element to um, compete on and, and part of the the ethos behind the social value from our perspective was about how does the market reward those people that are operating in the right way um, and, and if you can unlock some of that and, and some of the innovation that can come from um, you know, from businesses to think differently about how they do things um, be they social enterprise or other then I think that's a really powerful thing and we've certainly seen some very good examples of that. You talk about um the support uh, that's out there for commissioners, the guides, um, maybe even training and awareness for commissioners around it. I mean, how do you deliver that? I mean, how do you raise awareness amongst commissioners? What if you if you had a black if you were given a blank you know uh, canvas of which to sketch out how you would build support for commissioners to increase awareness and use of social value clauses? You now, what kind of stuff would you like to see being done? I think there's there's um there's an important piece around leadership buy-in, I think, in the first place. I think ultimately when you speak to um, commissioners and, and procurement people, I think they are judged by the metrics that are set against them, um, some of which are around short-term cost savings, for example. So 
I think there needs to be that strategic understanding, whether it's a local authority or a university or a housing association or a government department, you know, that there needs to be that leadership drive to say, look, we we are going to approach things differently. We're going to do it in this way. And here's why. Um, I think you then need kind of practical and useful guidance around how to how to actually deliver that. So what does that look like contractually? Um, what is it that we're trying to achieve? Is everyone on board with that? Is there a common understanding of the vision of what we're trying to do that you can then integrate into every part of the commissioning and procurement process? So you're doing it across everything and not just in one particular bit of the organisation. Um, and then I think it's about then driving that through um, to the you know, kind of main contractors, kind of main supply chain partners that you're working with and engaging them. Um, and then it comes to the kind of measurement piece at the end of then, well, how do you measure what you've done and what you've achieved? I think one of the things that I see at the moment quite a lot is a lot of people trying to jump to measurement first. And I think unless you know what it is that you're trying to achieve or measure, then that's a pretty difficult one to answer. Uh, so you need to have that understanding and have done that thinking up front. And, and so um, it, there's uh, some of the people that don't want to engage and say, oh, well, we can't measure it, so we can't do it. So, well, you can't measure social value because social value is a catch-all term for lots of things. You know, you can measure some specific things if they're what you're looking to achieve. So, you know, let's think about what you want to achieve first and then let's work out how we embed that into the process. So I think some of it is cultural, some of it is um, uh, tactical. A lot of it requires leadership and good leadership, I think, is really important across all of this stuff in terms of giving people the the comfort to do this and to do this well um and yeah, that's both top down and bottom up i think yeah no right i totally agree we do a lot of social impact measurement work and um the first thing we always do is uh, not that i'm that fond of the term but we sit down with with um, the organizations to sort of work out their theory of change and what it is that they actually you know what is the impact that impacts they're yeah. trying to deliver then we can move on to the metrics and uh, you see too many organisations are just um, capturing various metrics that they think could be useful and that there's not really a sort of strategic uh, level of thinking behind how they've selected those. But yeah, a wide variety of support options there. Thanks very much, Charlie. Um, so there you have it, listeners. Uh, social value is the centrepiece of purchasing power, both across government and in the consumer market. If you want to engage with us on any of the topics discussed today on Talking Impact, then please let us know via our Twitter feed at Talking Impact. Um, and our LinkedIn page, www.instituteforsocialinnovationandimpact.co.uk. Thanks again to Charlie for joining us and keep tabs on our iTunes feed for the next episode of Talking Impact. Thanks for listening to the Talking Impact podcast, brought to you by the Institute for Social Innovation and Impact. If you have any questions about the content discussed in this podcast, please email isii at northampton.ac.uk For more information on the Institute's work, visit northampton.ac.uk forward slash research. You've been listening to a Jump Media Group production. Talk to us at wejumphire.co.uk